You're listening to the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths. Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. WPFW, 89.3 FM, Washington. It has been centuries since the first Europeans invaded us over 600 years ago. They came here seeking religious freedom. They came here because the crown heads of Europe kicked them out of Europe. They were made victims in their own lands. However, when they got here, they were able to see the instant kindness and love that we had for each other, our willingness to help anyone that was in desperate need or in need of help. Shortly after that, they turned the tables on us. They became the conquerors, and we became we became those that are now known as the victims. This continues even today. Centuries later, we are still being victimized. Genocide continues only in different forms, economic forms, health care, and you name it, it continues. But health care was actually guaranteed to us. We signed these treaties in good faith. But every treaty that they made with my people has been abrogated. Today I am going to be talking to a very, very close friend of mine for 20 years or more. Her name is Suzette Brewer. Suzette Brewer is a, a writer. She's, she's a lot of things. She's a Cherokee woman from the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. So stay tuned, and I'll be back shortly to introduce Suzette Brewer to you, and then we will continue to talk. 
about some of the issues in Indian country that is affecting us. Not only Indian country, but a federal Indian law, communities, tribal communities, and families. I'm Jay Winter Night Wolf, and this is the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truths, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. May the sun bring you new energy each day. May the moon restore you by night. May the rain wash away your worries. May the breeze blow new strength into your being. May you walk gently through the world and know its beauty all the days of your life. All over the world, the faces of the living ones are alike. With tenderness, they have come out of the ground. Look upon your children that they may face the winds and walk the good road to the day of quiet. Great Spirit, fill us with the light. Give us strength to understand and the eyes to see. Teach us to walk the soft earth as relatives to all that live. Welcome back to the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truths, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. My sister, my friend, my sweetheart, for many years, Suzette Brewer is my guest today. Hello, Suzette. How are you? Good afternoon, Jay. It's good to be here again. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Let me ask you to do us a favor. Tell us sure. a little. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, um, as you mentioned, my name is Suzette Brewer. I am a member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. I grew up in Oklahoma, although I was born um, in Fort Benning, Georgia, because my dad was in the military. Um, and I have spent the better part of my adult life advocating on behalf of the tribes and their best interests. Um, either through writing, advocacy, uh, through my um, work with the American Indian College Fund, with the National Indian Gaming Association, with the National Museum of the American Indian, and so forth. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about myself because I'm, I'm here for the tribes, but I have grown up in Indian country. I grew up in a small traditional community in Oklahoma. Uh, surrounded by fluent speakers and people who still engage to this day in uh, traditional practices of the Jalagi, or the that's the traditional word for the Cherokee Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just really happy to be here today to talk to you about the Indian Child Welfare Act and whatever else you want to talk about, Jay. I'm I'm here for you. Okay. That's what I've always loved about you. Whenever we talk, it's like, we were in each other's presence five minutes ago, and let's continue the conversation. Suzette. You bet. Yeah. So, you know, there was a case in court uh, 
Brackeen versus Bernhardt, part of the ICWA uh, case. What is the summary on that case? And explain what it is for those that don't know, know anything about it or know very little about ICWA. Well, Brackeen versus Bernhardt arose out of the state of Texas uh, several years ago. It involves two children who are primarily Navajo, I think, but um, I think one of them, I think they're also um, Cherokee Nation. I think they might be a couple of different things. And so they were uh, removed into state custody and were um, put into foster care with some non-Native families. And, I mean, just to get right to the point, essentially um, the families, in my opinion, uh, are seeking to use foster care as the pipeline to adoption, which that is not the purpose of what foster care is supposed to do. Foster care is meant to provide a temporary home for children until they can be reunited with um, their families of origin. Um, There are a number of mechanisms that are put into place uh, for foster children uh, in order to be able to be reunified with their families. Um, Usually adoption happens when all of those remedies have been exhausted and there's just no chance whatsoever that the child is going to be returned to either their biological uh, parents or their families of origin. In this particular case, as I understand it, uh, the children's grandparents who are Navajo uh, wanted custody of these kids, but the non-Indian foster families are fighting this um, with support from the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, who has had a long-held grudge toward the Indian Child Welfare Act. And they are suing, or they basically have sued to overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act, which the Goldwater Institute um, has been trying to do for at least a decade. I've been covering Indian Child Welfare Act since 2013, and um, it has apparent to anybody with with any kind of common sense that you know um, the underlying cause here is, has nothing really to do with the Indian Child Welfare Act, but it has everything to do with. Um, certain interests seeking to basically dismantle the legal status of tribes in the United States. I believe that they see the Indian Child Welfare Act as the weakest link in the chain. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they are, they've been like a wolf around the perimeter for the last God knows how long, but at least since the time that I've been covering this with adoptive couple versus baby girl, um, Mm -hmm. they have, filed numerous cases since that time seeking to completely demolish and overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act. The problem with that is that that applies across the board to all federal Indian law. And that's over 250 years of established Indian law, beginning with the Constitution, uh, that they are seeking basically to um, annihilate the tribes from the bench and assimilate them into um, mainstream American culture. Because if this happens, um, if, if they are uh, successful, then it's going to have a broad stroke effect across all types of federal Indian law across the board. I want to go back to one quick thing in, in thinking about, you know, what this was intended to do. Uh, it, it arose out of the Fifth Circuit, Brackeen did. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, the Northern District of Te- Texas. And so they 
they had been seeking, um, they had filed numerous federal cases and jurisdictions across the country um, since Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl. And those had all been thrown out uh, on similar grounds for lack of standing, uh, no merits, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But finally, they they went forum shopping is essentially what they did. And uh, they found a jurisdiction in northern Texas with uh, Judge Reed O'Connor, I think is his name, um, who essentially agreed with the Goldwater Institute and, in my estimation, did their bidding for them. Uh, He overturned the the entirety of the Indian Child Welfare Act last year. Uh, Then that that case went to the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans. Uh, A three-judge panel there overturned his opinion and reinstated the Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm just summarizing. There's, it's way more complex than this, but I'm just giving you the, the, the basic facts of the case. So a three-judge panel in the Fifth Circuit last August overturned Judge O'Connor's uh, opinion and uh, reinstated the Indian Child Welfare Act because when you dismantle or when you basically outlaw the Indian Child Welfare Act, what you are in effect doing is overturning all of federal Indian law because all of it applies all the time across the board to every single tribe across the country. Mm-hmm. So any decision that takes place, let's say in the ninth circuit is going to have profound implications for the tribes in the second circuit. And that's all the way across the country. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and so when uh, the three judge panel met, they, you know, overturned his decision, reinstated ICWA, but, and here's where it starts getting uh, a bit hairy. Um, in December of 2019, uh, it was announced that the Fifth Circuit would be rehearing this case en banc. And en banc is a legal term, which basically means that all 17 judges in that circuit would be rehearing their own case. Mm-hmm. Even though I need to point out that neither party, neither the plaintiffs nor the defendants in this case, were asking for a rehearing. So on its own, which means which the legal term for that is sua sponte, uh, on its own, the Fifth Circuit decided uh, in a, a, an unprecedented decision to rehear the case um, in 2020. I believe it was reheard on January 23rd of this year, but they decided to hear the rehear the case with all 17 judges in the circuit. First of all, that never happened. Secondly, the only reason that they would do something of that nature would be to overturn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that's going to do, whoever wins or loses, certainly the other side is going to you know, take it up to the Supreme Court. Um, at that point, the Supreme Court has a couple of options. They could decline to hear and let the lower court ruling stand. They could take the case and uh, make their own determination as to whether the Indian Child Welfare Act is constitutional, which is essentially what the plaintiffs are alleging in this case. Um, But overall, the fact that a circuit that's already ruled on a particular case has now reheard its own case with all 17 members could only indicate one thing, that they reheard this case in order to overturn. And so that's my take on the situation. Uh, We haven't heard yet what the final decision uh, is from the Fifth Circuit. But this is a a dire time for Indian country because, you know, along with other things that have emerged out of the Department of the Interior uh, in regards to Indian lands, um, in regards to uh, even, you know, the CARES Act, 
uh, in regards to the COVID crisis, the way um, things are shaking out for the tribes under this administration, um, frankly, should put fear in the heart of all tribal leaders everywhere. Um, because if this case is, in fact, um, if the plaintiffs are successful in this case, it, it stands to undo literally 250 years of federal Indian law. Mm. Um, and so it. I can't stress enough that this is um, this is very serious. It's very grave. Uh, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. Um, I can't. I just can't foresee that the Fifth Circuit would have taken this case up to rehear it um, unless they had a specific um, objective that they were seeking to achieve. Um, rather than let it emerge out of another circuit, they took it up themselves, and so. I don't know what the final outcome is going to be, but uh, that's why I'm here today, because the bottom line is that regardless of what's happening now around the world, particularly with the COVID crisis, this is a very important case in Indian country that really stands to do a lot of damage should the plaintiffs um, be successful in their quest to overturn ICWA and by extension um, undermine all of federal Indian law. So I'm here today to mm-hmm. remind people that even with all the crisis that is happening right now, this is still a very serious case that's bumble, you know, bubbling underneath the surface that people need to um, be aware of and uh, to, you know, to try to uh, stay on top of in terms of, you know, what it could mean uh, when the decision does come down. Okay. I would like to make a couple of points or one is a question Suzette, um, and what what's happening with with our children caught up in the system? Does this sound like it's parallel, or what's happening with the children that uh, have been taken away from their parents as they cross the borders? Does that sound similar? And all of a sudden, they can't find them. What happened to them? You know. You have any thoughts on that? Because because these children that are coming from south of Tejas, Texas, are also Native children as well. What I can say to that is that it is an identical strategy. Because this goes back to, and I, I this is something that uh, I've done a lot of research on over the years, because I wanted to find out um, why it was so important from the beginning of European contact that the um, European colonial powers were so intent on getting, because this is, this is something that's been going on mm-hmm. in terms of taking the children mm-hmm. since 1492. Yeah. I mean, from the very, very beginning of Columbus's, uh, you know, um, being lost at sea. I, I, yeah. I would say ill-fated voyage. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of my take on it, <laughs> but I mean, um, mm-hmm. and it was ill-fated definitely for, the indigenous people of this continent for sure. Mm-hmm. But one of their, the first things they did was to gather up the children. And so I always wondered about that. You know, what makes it so, why the children, why is that so important? Um, and, but I have to say, I finally found the answer during my years of research about this issue. Mm-hmm. This is a practice that goes back to the Roman empire, right? This is something that people don't really know or understand, but when Rome began to expand its territorial um, uh, conquest, yeah, conquest, uh, one of the things that they did, uh, first and foremost, was to take the children 
and to turn them into quote unquote Roman citizens and to teach them, you know, uh, Latin or Italian, whatever the language was. Mm -hmm. Um, And typically what they did was they spread out, as you know, into, you know, Celtic, um, Germanic, Mm-hmm. because those are not the same. I mean, I think people don't really understand that, but, um, you know, they, they spread out into Celtic and Germanic territories. And the first thing that they would do is take the children and turn them into quote unquote Roman citizens. They would kidnap the children, if you will, and so hold to, them as ransom as, yeah. or hold them as rant. Sorry. Go ahead. Continue. So hold that, them as ransom. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> hold them as ransom so that they could control the parents. Well, not just and that. So, go ahead. There's also an no, un- there's an underlying factor there, is uh, if we take the children, change them around, then you, the ones we're taking our children from, your culture, your traditions, and who you are will mm-hmm. not continue. Well, that's exactly right. That's the whole point of Romanization. Isn't that genocide? That's, it is a kind of cultural and honestly human genocide. That's true. But you know the whole the whole thing is that they spread through Europe. And as you know, the Roman Empire at one point was the largest empire in world history. And so what they did was that that was a, a known practice all the way up into, you know, Britannia mm-hmm. and uh, and the Celtic peoples um, of those islands. And so, as we know, they, they spread up into all the way far north up into, you know, Britannia and uh, those Celtic tribes, they also had their children taken. So that was sort of a, that was a tactic by the Romans in order to expand their, their territorial quest. And the way to do that was to inculcate or brainwash the children from the outset so that, you know, um, that's how they control those territories. And so finally, I think around the time I, I want to say of Boudicca, she was the woman warrior. Uh, they 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 squashed her rebellion, and mm-hmm. that sort of signaled the end of um, any rebellion by the Celtic tribes. And so, I bring you now to the Americas. And so, what these people did, you know, when they got here, what doesn't matter which colonial power they came from. The first thing they did was to take the children in the exact same pattern. Mm-hmm. So there's a fact pattern here that we're looking at in terms of the children. You know, they would take the children from the parents. They would, you know, started with Spanish. Ultimately, they were taught English, French, Portuguese, what, what, whatever, you know, what pick one in terms of the colonial powers. Right. Um, the Brits, honestly, were the probably the most, um, the British Empire was probably the most, um, I would say bloodthirsty. They didn't, you know, the, I would say the Spaniards, um, they were also, I would say, um, bloodthirsty, but they were more interested in conversion, you know, conversion to Christianity, conversion to Catholicism, uh, you know, sort of folding those people into their empire. The Brits just wanted the Indians out of the way. Yeah. Okay. So and, now, go ahead. And, and so, you know, over time, it went from the colonial uh, kidnapping of children and putting them into mission schools, if you will, uh, to once the United States became its own independent country, um, that policy, those policies just continued with the federal government in terms of taking them, putting them into boarding schools, that sort of thing. And then ultimately it led to um, uh, the Indian Adoption Act in the 1950s, where, you know, it was federal policy. If they weren't put into a uh, federal boarding school or a church boarding school, they were 
uh, ultimately taken and putting put into foster homes. Um, and all of it really led to the severance of and the continued diminution of tribes and communities um, for the express purpose of this, again, going back to the Roman Empire, of assimilation and expansion. But what yeah. they didn't count on is the fact that Pockets of Indian people survived everywhere, as you know. Absolutely. So let me let me let me let me just say something here. Uh, you sure. mentioned you mentioned Rome quite a few times, and and I understand where you're coming from. But it was in 1452 that the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, out of the Vatican, issued a Catholic edict or order. The papal bulls. Papal bulls. And the yes. papal bulls basically said to uh, conquistadors and folks that wanted to take over people's lands uh, is that you have the divine right. Whenever you find people throughout your travels that don't look like you, act like you, talk like you, or think mm -hmm. like you, you got the divine right to in, enslave them or subdue them or kill them. And yeah. any, anything that they have that you see of value that you want, you can take it from them. That's a divine right that Roman Catholic Church has given you, provided that you give 10% back to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, exactly, yes. Uh, and, well, we know that story. But the other thing is, what about the sexual conquest of, of, uh, of uh, conquered. conquered people? You know, this, this, this whole thing in these, these boarding schools, there was mm -hmm. massive rape going on. Well, rape has been a sort of a mechanism or a tool of conquest from the beginning of time, and it's no different here in the United States with our indigenous populations. Uh, that is a uh, an act of violence, as you know, an act of war. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I always find interesting um, is that they won't admit to it, but we know that the that there were many children that were born out of um, these acts of violence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and those children, as you know, were treated badly by both sides, mm -hmm. um, you know, who were neither full blood indigenous, but they certainly weren't white. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that that has led over the ensuing years. Uh, yeah, I, to answer your question or to, I guess, further expand on your your observation. That is something that definitely has uh, been in place and it continues to this day mm -hmm. uh, as far as rape and sexual assault of native women and children, frankly. I mean, I'm not going to just, uh, mm -hmm. I'm not going to uh, confine that just to women, but um, the sexual assault of native people has been going on uh, since contact and either as a weapon of war, uh, sort of a, a you know, I guess mm -hmm. what you would call a, cri a crime of convenience because they're there. Mm -hmm. um, but over time, I think that, you know, Indian people have their lives and their sort of humanity has been so diminished and devalued by these acts, either by taking their children through sexual assault um, and then sort of, I guess, shoving aside or denying sort of responsibility for how that has continued to ripple effect through our communities. Um, so, to this day, I think is really um, sort of uh, tragic. So to make a long story short, it, it was the act of 
assimilation of people. Uh, and they had something called the extinction strategy. They wanted to make those that, that they didn't like extinct, and this was, this was basically what they did. And that is exactly why the Brackeen versus Bernhardt case is so crucial, because to me, that is the legal sort of imprimatur, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that would be a nail in the coffin to a large extent for not just Indian child welfare, but that's going to, that's under the premises by which they've sued, that could impact health care, for example, it, you know, mm-hmm. Indian Health Service. It can impact uh, housing. It can mm-hmm. impact education. It can impact law enforcement. Every single aspect of tribal life in America on Indian lands um, will be impacted if they are successful in overturning the Indian Child Welfare Act in its totality. I think what happened in Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl is that decision turned on a two-word phrase, which, as you might remember, is it was continued custody. Dustin Brown did not have continued custody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they did not get into the slicing and dicing of blood quantums and tribal membership and tribal sovereignty on that. They turned that whole entire decision on whether or not he had continued custody. He, according to them, he didn't. Now, the, the facts on the ground in terms of why he didn't have continued custody are not in dispute. I mean, he was basically lied to and uh, his significant other hid from him uh, until she could have the baby. So there was no way he was going to have continued custody. But that is that was the the legal keyhole, uh, the narrow keyhole through which they decided that case from which kept them from having to decide a more complex issue of what who's an Indian and what makes a tribe. There you go. This particular case, Brackeen, just overturns the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it overturns the whole thing. And by extension, that's a very big domino that's going to have a huge impact, as I mentioned, on these other aspects of um, federal Indian law. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. And, and governmental policy toward the tribes. Okay. So, Suzette, what we're going to do, we're going to come back in about a minute or two. This is WPFW 89.3 FM, the American Indian Indigenous People's Troops. Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. WPFW 89.3 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the most dangerous show on radio. I'm Jay Winter Night Wolf. 
along with my very special guest and good friend for many years, Suzette Brewer. We're discussing the effect of uh, the ICWA, Indian Child Welfare Act, and how it's being threatened and the effects that it could have on tribal governments, tribal nations, communities, and the whole Indian law, federal Indian law that's been in place for 250 years. Suzette, it's, a, it's an honor to have you with me today. Um, overturning ICWA could mean what for tribal communities and families? To put a fine point on it, essentially what it's going to mean is that the Indian Child Welfare Act and the state court systems will no longer be applicable. Mm. Under the current system, tribes and tribal members have certain protections under the Indian Child Welfare Act that are crucial to retaining Indian children in these communities. If they are, if the plaintiffs are successful in this litigation, it will mean essentially that when a, a Native kid goes into state custody and in their court hearings that they will be treated as any other kid and they will be allowed to be adopted, fostered, by any family that, that meets, I guess, the eligibility requirements. Currently under the law, you know, there are special provisions that would allow, that do allow um, the child to remain uh, in connection with their tribe. Now, the plaintiffs in this case will say, well, we intend to allow the kids to be uh, exposed, they say, to their culture, but they should be allowed to be adopted by anyone basically with the money to do it. In its totality, I disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Coming from a tribal community, I am I know literally hundreds of adult children, pre, pre and post ICWA adoptees and foster kids who I, I would say across the board with the exception of maybe a, a minor percentile, like less than 1%, all of the adult adoptees disagree with what's going on in this case because they themselves are the product of what happens when you don't have those protections or didn't have those protections in place. And so to answer your question, it could have a major, I mean, forgetting about the federal Indian law piece, forgetting about the overall policymaking and so forth at the 30,000 foot level, on the local level, on the personal level for tribal families, this is going to have a devastating impact. Because already the states fight ICWA every step of the way. I've been in states across the country where they literally train their uh, social workers that even though ICWA is federal Indian law, don't follow it. We don't follow that here. I've been told that in states across the country. And so it's already sort of, uh, you know, under fire just on the local level. But essentially to me what it boils down to is the fact that, you know, a lot of non-Indian social workers prosecutors, judges in the system either don't have a clear understanding of what it was intended to do, or frankly, they don't want to be bothered with it because it falls outside of their mainstream, you know, practices in terms of what adoption and foster care should be in terms of the way they follow it. And so I think the biggest issue here, the, the most crucial issue here is that from a local familial standpoint, it is going to have a devastating impact on the tribes because if, if you can't 
if you can't find your kid in the system, and that's happened. I, I've heard the testimonies at the BIA hearings. A lot of people can't, they can't even find their kid. They're not even told where their kids are. They're not even given the opportunity to speak on behalf of themselves. They often are not even given any paperwork as regards to why the kid was taken in the first place. Kid disappears. Sometimes they, they're under the impression that the kid ran away. No, the kid's in state custody and they haven't been notified. And then the states will turn around and say, well, we tried to notify the tribe, uh, but they never responded. So therefore, we're going to adopt this kid out. Meanwhile, the tribes are saying we never got notification that this Indian child of ours was in the system until after it was way too late until after the kid has already been adopted out. And so there's a a disconnect. If that ain't a crock of BS, I don't know what is. Somebody's not telling the truth. And the tribes in general, I think, have been very forthcoming. Uh, They have mobilized in a way that I haven't seen probably on very many issues in Indian country in my entire life. But everyone has mobilized on the issue of the Indian Child Welfare Act. What about the treaty obligations? They got treaty obligations. There are trust and treaty obligations, for sure, uh, across a variety of different uh, policy issues. And But I think, to me, this is the trust and treaty obligation that has mm-hmm. not been fulfilled. As far as I'm concerned, the number one trust and treaty obligation of the federal government is to protect the tribes and to uh, protect the tribal members and protect them from being adopted and fostered out in what I can honestly say are questionable circumstances. But, you know, to me, the number one obligation of the federal government, the number one trust and treaty obligations is to protect the children. And they have not done that. You know, if, um, not if, but when we win this, this, uh, this case against uh, what they're trying to do to ICWA, that will definitely give us a credence or a way of continuing our long-term survival as, as Native people, wouldn't you think? Well, I, we can't drop our guards on this one. We can't assume that we're going to win because obviously there are things that are happening at the federal level in regards to the tribes that are very concerning in regards mm-hmm. to uh, land and the trust, in regards to the disestablishment of certain reservations, as you know. Uh-huh. Um, and I know you've reported on that yourself. Um, there are some very concerning things that are coming out of the federal government in terms of their policy making, um, not notifying the tribes of certain policy decisions that they they've made. Um, I think if there's ever a time for us to be very alert um, and very cognizant of what's happening with the court cases, with the federal rulemaking, with you know the policies that are coming out of Interior, now is that time. Absolutely. Um, I can't stress enough that we have to be very vigilant right now because this is a very sensitive time for Indian country as we move into, especially with the COVID crisis. I think this is a very crucial time for us to be paying attention to everything that's happening, not just on the crisis, but everything that's happening, including uh, the status of the Brackeen case. Mm -hmm. And of course, healthcare in general. They gave us these phony treaties that they didn't keep and just to get our lands from us. And they guaranteed in the treaties that we will take care of you. So I'm, I'm trying to reading backwards on that. We will take care of you. Does that mean that you're going to genuinely take care of us or we're going to take care of you? Two ways of, of interpretation, right? It's undisputed. It's an indisputed, undisputed fact that every single treaty that the federal government made with tribes has been broken and abrogated in one way or another. Mm-hmm. 
um, they have not upheld their end of the bargain, obviously. And again, certainly that applied to me. As far as I'm concerned, it affected the children the most. Yeah. And so it seems to me that the treaty obligations that we talk about, I think the general consensus and I think the general misunderstanding among mainstream lawyers, mainstream um, advocates, uh, anti-ICWA advocates, is a misunderstanding of what a treaty actually is. A treaty has the full force of law. And I think there's a concept that treaties are kind of like papyrus or they're sort of like some ancient scroll or document that really don't matter anymore. But that's not the case. Treaties possess the full force of any law passed by Congress. They are the, and, they, yeah. they are the supreme law of the land. They are the supreme law of the land. And I think there's a general misunderstanding by these anti-Indian, and that's what they are. They are anti-Indian advocates, if you will. I think there's a general consensus among them that the treaties don't really exist anymore, or if they do, that they're just quaint little documents that really don't have any relevance to modern law as we know it. But I would suggest that there are 6 million Indian people in this country who disagree. Yes. And, you know, getting let's go back to... Um the Indian voting rights of 1924, constitutional rights that we have uh, in comparison to treaty rights. You know, they made us citizens after they came here and tried to kill all of us. <laughs> <laughs> and if we're citizens, then the U.S. Constitution is supposed to be a part of our rights, as well as the right to vote. What's your, yes. what's, what's your take on that? Well, my take on that is that all of my grandparents were born in Indian territory. They were not citizens. That is a true statement. They uh, did not achieve status uh, as U.S. citizens until 1924. So what does that mean? That means that they did not get to vote. They didn't have the same uh, rights under the Bill of Rights that average Americans had. I think, 19, I, I think it's interesting to me that Indians were the last group to be granted citizenship and voting rights. And honestly, the, they were not granted full voting rights until 1957 when the state of Utah uh, went, fought all the way to the Supreme Court to deny the tribes in their state the right to vote. So people talk about 1924 as if that is the date that we achieved the right to vote. That is not true. For some tribes, they did not get full voting rights until 1957. Right. And that is, to me, the... Um, that is one of the original sins, uh, aside from slavery. I mean, slavery is the original sin, obviously, of our founding. But the other original sin prior to that is the fact that, that tribes were not even considered um, citizens human- in their own country. Yes. Or, or, or even full human beings, honestly, if we're getting right down to brass tacks, until much later. Again, when I hear these anti-Indian advocates from the Goldwater Institute and from other conservative think tanks um, try to finesse and, you know, massage their their messaging to say that, oh, we're not anti-Indian. No, you are anti-Indian. Let's just own it. And why don't you just admit once and for all that you want to get rid of the tribes, assimilate them, and try to act like we're just like everybody else. We are not. We will never assimilate, and we will never not exist. Exactly. You know, I want to. I would like to read something to you. Uh, this is the preamble from uh, 
the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I just want to read a couple of these paragraphs to you and, mm -hmm. and get your take on it, because this is so relevant to what we're talking about today. And this was written by Eleanor Roosevelt. It says, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the consciousness of mankind and the advent of the world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want as has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people. And I end that. Does this sound so familiar to how we have been mistreated as a people to you? Well, who can disagree with Eleanor Roosevelt? Nobody, <laughs> Nobody with common sense. <laughs> I mean, listen, I belong to the Cherokee Nation, as you know. Yeah. And we are one of many, many tribes who were pushed around and removed and marched and mm -hmm. over hill and dale with bare feet and no medicine, no blankets, no food, no In the cold no and in the snow, yeah. Our women raped on the trail, our children taken from us. So if you're asking me if I agree with her, absolutely I do, because they, they were barbarous acts. And so what I always find interesting, and, and I'm just going to get right down to the point, it's interesting to me when non-Indians, you know, continue on the whole defining of Indian people as noble savages or savages or what yeah, have you. I think to yeah. my, I look at I look at Europe and I, I've been to Europe. I've been all over Europe and I've been to most of their the, the largest museums over there. Mm -hmm. I've seen those torture chambers and the torture instruments and implements that they put into place. And I think about everything that's happened to Indian people since contact. And I have a, I have a tough time. I just wonder who is the savage and who isn't the savage. I, I have no question about it. I know who is the savage. I, I mean, I think about, you know, the drawing and quartering, the tarring and feathering, the mm -hmm. uh, multiple other sort of instruments that they use to kill each other and torture each other. And then they brought all that over here. I have a tough time calling Indian people savage when I think about all of the horrible, horrific things, burning at the stake and so on and so forth. And then they'll turn around and say, you Indians are savage. That's Yeah, what a contradiction, it's right? It's the pot calling the kettle black, I guess. But yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would say that Native people, in, in my estimation, in all of the study that I've ever done, were not just mercilessly savage for no reason. Just like they don't kill a buffalo just to take this thing or that. They, they use the whole thing. There's a purpose behind the, the usage of the entire animal. Yes. The same is true for their, you know, their acts of war. They don't go to war with people for no good reason. They don't do things for no good reason. But I find that on the European side that there's, you know, a long, long history of completely senseless, Let's just take World War One for example. Completely senseless. That whole entire thing was senseless and stupid, and it led to the death of millions of people and the collapse of empires over nothing, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Over the death of a of a crown prince. I mean, really that that that's the reason you're giving for this total collapse of the global structure. Well, we know it's deeper than that, but again, that goes back to sort of the establishment of, you know, modern, modern history 
uh, through the Romans. Yes. But the thing is that I just want to, I want to, you know, reiterate that the tribes here, like they had a system for everything and there was a reason they did everything, whether it was planting the crops, killing animals for food, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the way their villages were set up. Uh, it, it all had a purpose that had been put into place based on, you know, their own methods of science and math and technology that they had. It it all made sense if you pay attention to what they were doing. But I don't see that on the other side of the Atlantic. Would you like to comment on uh, the case, the Cherokee versus the state of Georgia? Oh, do you mean Worcester versus Georgia? There you go. That The reason that case is important is because it set an early, if not one of the earliest precedents, that the tribes are, quote unquote, domestic dependent nations. Uh-huh. It sort of memorialized their relationship to the federal government. Um, and that case has been cited literally in every single Indian law case since that time. Mm-hmm. That is, it's one of the foundations of what we now call federal Indian law. I mean, the, the tribes existed prior to the United States. We had our own sovereignty prior to the United States. Mm-hmm. So that is without question. But I think what Worcester versus Georgia did, even though the what happened ultimately in that particular case, that was a case involving a minister who was in the Cherokee Nation um, at that time. Yep. Um, the Cherokee Nation had its own lawyer. Uh, they had their own Harvard-trained lawyers who went to court and they argued and they won. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is for the people on, uh, you know, the listeners who may not understand what Worcester, Worcester versus Georgia really is. You know, we weren't relying on outside lawyers. We had our own Indian lawyers who had gone to Harvard. They went to court. They argued the case. They won the case. And Andrew Jackson then came back and said, well, you know, he ignored uh, Marshall's final decision and uh, had the U.S. Cavalry march the tribe all the way to Oklahoma, some 900 and some odd miles anyway. Yeah, his, so his, even, sta- his statement was, well, you know, you have your decision, but I got the army. That's exactly and right. He defied, that's, that's, yeah, he defied the orders. Uh, he defied the the court order, mm-hmm. and he he removed the tribes anyway. And so it wasn't just the Cherokee Nation, although that was the case that sort of set everything in motion. And so that case became sort of one of the platforms or foundations of federal Indian law. But having said that, the tribes were moved anyway. And then the tribes out west saw that whole fiasco and thought, well, the Cherokees. We had our own constitution. We had our own school mm-hmm. systems. We had our own court every systems. everything. We had our own everything. We had our own everything, and and they, you know, we tried to base ours, I think, as close to the federal government as we could. Not because we were trying necessarily to assimilate, but because we saw what was happening and we wanted to be left alone. Yes. And so maybe if we, maybe if we build this system, you know, to reflect kind of what they understand, maybe they'll leave us alone. In the end, what it boiled down to was you may have all this stuff, you may have a courthouse, you may have schools and what have you, but we don't care because really, at the end of the day, you're just Indians. I would like to first thank my guest today, my my dear, dear, dear friend, Suzette Brewer, for taking time out of her very busy schedule to sit down and talk to us for a while. Um... The story is not over. You will hear a continuation of this in the future. My dear friend Suzette, do you have any closing thoughts? I just think we're in a very sensitive and vulnerable time right now in Indian country. I think it's um, 
it's one where I always feel kind of like a watcher, you know, particularly in periods like this where we don't know what's going to happen um, in the next six months, much less the next couple of years. Um, and I, I'm concerned for the tribes. I'm concerned for tribal families and for tribal children. But overall, I'm concerned in general as to whether or not we're going to have a basis for federal Indian law if this case is overturned again in the same circuit that it was just overturned in. It, to me, speaks to the chaos that has continued to unfold out of this administration and through their judicial appointees. I think it really behooves all of us to stay vigilant and to be as aware as we possibly can of all of the moving parts right now as we move through this difficult time. Because I think there's a lot going on perhaps that we don't know about. But I think what we do know about in regards to the litigation, court cases, and policies that are being promulgated, I think we have to stay as vigilant as we possibly can. Absolutely. Will you promise to come back again so we can continue this conversation? (laughs) Oh, of course. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Suzette. I'll talk to you again real soon, right? My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And give my nephew a big hug for me. Tell Ben I said hello. I will do that. Thank you. You're welcome. ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, stands to be destroyed by the courts of the United States government. The genocide of our people continue. They want to take our children from us. They want to destroy anything Indian that they are. Please go online and look up ICWA, Indian Child Welfare Act, and call your congressional members and encourage them to not allow this to happen. If this happens, everything that we've had over the last 250 years, Indian law, would be wiped off the books and there'll be no more Indians. If you want to find out what we do here on the Night Wolf Show, go to my Facebook page, Winter Night Wolf Productions, and you can see what we do and what we are trying to accomplish for the well-being of my people, your brothers and sisters that may not necessarily look like you, but members of the human family we are, just as you are, the red, the black, the white, and the yellow. Remember, it's not about the color of your skin or the color of your eyes. It's not about the texture of your hair. It's not about who you worship and call your God. What it's really all about is how you treat my heart.